And we've been in a series that we've been calling Seed the Clouds. And uh, you can go ahead and find a seat this morning. And we've been talking about what it looks like to make investments that matter in all of eternity. And we don't want to just see the dirt temporary things. We want to see the clouds and pray and ask God that he would uh, bless and that God would multiply whatever it is that we give when it comes to our generosity. And of course, this is culminating and leading into next Sunday as we participate in the Heart for the House offering, which we're praying for. But today we're going to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 6. And if you're ready to dive into God's word, would you say amen? amen? The Bible says this, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply Everybody say multiply. multiply. And he will multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Today I want to speak just for a few minutes on this subject. Play the long game. The long game. Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. Father, thank you so much for just a wonderful day that we've already had. God, thank you for these children that have been dedicated, these baptisms, Lord, just for your glory. God, thank you for just your word and how it's speaking to us in a powerful way. And God, I pray that for a few minutes today that we'd be able to zero in on your word, that we would be able to glean exactly what it is that you have for us. Lord, I pray that we would understand what it looks like to uh, play the long game, that we would understand what it looks like to live for something beyond the now and beyond ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in a great way. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said today. Amen. In 1785, there was a French mathematician whose name was Charles Joseph Mathon. His full French name was Charles Joseph Mathon de la Cure. And he was a French mathematician that was mocking and belittling Ben Franklin. And uh, hello. And uh, Ben Franklin uh, at the time wrote the Poor Richard Almanac. And uh, how many of you remember learning about that in school? Poor Richard Almanac. And uh, he wrote this, uh, uh, this uh, periodical, this magazine. And, and uh, this French mathematician was mocking it. He was making fun of it. And really, he was making fun of Ben Franklin's American optimism. And he wrote a parody uh, that was called Fortunate Richard. And Fortunate Richard uh, was this parody that talked about this man that was going to invest money into his will, but he couldn't touch that money for over 500 years. Well, when Ben Franklin heard about this parody, when he heard about this uh, thing that was written against him, rather than get upset, he actually wrote this man a letter. And he said, thank you for the idea. In fact, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And so Ben Franklin decided that he was going to leave in his will an investment that he was going to leave behind for the cities of Boston and Philadelphia. 
And at the time, he just left about $4,000, and he says, I want this to be used for the city of Boston and Philadelphia with one stipulation. It can't be used for 200 years. Now, this was a real step of faith for Ben Franklin because uh, the uncertainty surrounding the United States at this time was high. They didn't know what was going to happen, where things were going to be. And so he left that investment into his will. Sure enough, 200 years later, 1990, the cities of Philadelphia and Boston were awarded Ben Franklin's investment. And that investment was now worth $6.5 million. And I love that story because Ben Franklin knew how to play the long game. He, he said, it's not just about what's here right in front of me right now. That investment accrued interest, and he was able to reap uh, that return on that $6.5 million. Really, this is what seeding the clouds is all about. This is what we've been talking about over the last several weeks as a church, that we're not just making short-term investments, that we're not just considering what's right in front of us, the here and the now. What we are doing is we are looking beyond the here and now and considering how we can make an impact for generations to come, how we can make an impact for what's really going to matter in all of eternity. We want to play the long game. Uh, my son Luke has been playing baseball, and I've been teaching my son Luke and my two girls how to eat sunflower seeds. Because when you play baseball, you got to eat sunflower seeds. You know, I'm talking about junior, like you, you eat sunflower seeds uh, when you play baseball. But my kids, they don't really know how to do that yet. And so they just, they don't really understand that there's actually a little seed inside of that shell. You know, they just want to put it in their mouth and get the salt off it and, and kind of chew it up. And uh, so I'm trying to teach them how to get access to that little seed through that shell. And uh, the other day, my son Luke jumped in the car and he said, hey, dad, let's go get some bird seed. And I said, Luke, it's not bird seed. It's a sunflower seed. And uh, he's a little bit confused uh, really about the different kinds of seeds. And I think the reality is for all of us today is that we have to understand there's often confusion and uncertainty of what it actually looks like to sow seeds of generosity. So many Christians, so many followers of Jesus uh, can become even cynical or confused when it comes to generosity. Certainly the world and the culture around us is cynical when it comes often to uh, generosity. And we have to understand there is confusion around this subject. And many people are turned off uh, even by the subject of generosity. But we have to understand what actually the Bible says. Uh, not just what we think or what we feel, but what does the Bible actually say? First Timothy 6, 17, Paul gives instruction to a young pastor named Timothy. And he says this, charge them that are rich in this world. Charge them. In other words, give them instruction. I want you to teach them something. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. By the way, I'm thankful that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. I love that God wants us to live the greatest life possible. But he says this, charge them that are rich. Now, we have to identify who's he talking about. Sometimes we can consider the rich and we think that's someone that has, you know, private jet. They have their own helicopter. They have, you know, many houses. But really, who are the rich? We have to understand on a global scale, we are the rich. That God has blessed us immeasurably. If you have a combined household income of $50,000, you are in the top 1% of earners on the planet. We have to recognize that, that on a global scale, we are blessed, that God has been so good to us. Many people today are busy trying to get rich when they don't realize they already are, that, that God has blessed us beyond measure. We have uh, clean water and we have food on the table and a roof over our head. God has been good to us. And so he says, charge them that are rich, but then he says rich in this world. Yeah. Now, why does he say that? Rich in 
this world. Well, Paul is alluding to the fact that there is another world, that there is life beyond the grave. By the way, this gives us great hope today. I'm so thankful today that there is another world, that there is a real place called heaven, that there is life beyond the grave. I'm thankful today uh, that there is eternal life. If not, we might as well just do what Solomon said, eat, drink, and be merry, and do whatever we want. Hey, you might as well just pursue pleasure. You might as well just do whatever feels good. You might as well just follow your heart and do whatever you want in life. YOLO, you only live once, but thank God there is life beyond the grave. Thank God that we can live for something greater than ourselves. Thank God that we can live for eternal purpose. Hey, it's not about here and now. It's about there and then, and we ought to be playing the long game. Now, the question that I have is, how do we do that? How do we play the long game? How do we live with that kind of eternal focus? Well, to answer that question, we're going to look to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 today. And to give you a little context, Paul was writing to a real church in the real ancient city of Corinth in the first century. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Corinth, Corinth was a place known for its immorality. It was known for its sexual promiscuity. This place was a wild place. In fact, it was so wild that if you were living a life of sexual fornication, that became synonymous with the word Corinth and Corinthian. And so if you were living a promiscuous lifestyle, they would say, hey, stop acting like a Corinthian. Uh, you're living like a Corinthian. And so Paul was writing to a very wicked city that was involved with all kinds of sexual immorality. And he's confronting these things, but he also is challenging the church in the midst of all that to live open-handed, to live a life of generosity. And really the context of why he was saying that, if we ha uh, have the map this morning, if you can put it up on the screen. The church at Jerusalem was going through a difficult season of adversity and poverty. And so the church at Jerusalem was uh, experiencing a great trial of affliction. They were struggling financially. They didn't have any money uh, just to keep on going, to keep on surviving, certainly not to thrive. And so Paul was writing from Macedonia, which was this region where it says Thessalonica, uh, Philippi, Berea. He was writing from this region to the city of Corinth. And he's challenging Corinth. Hey, uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ need your help. They need your generosity. Generosity. And so he's challenging the church to step up to the plate and to be generous to further the mission of the church. That's what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And so what I want to do today is I want to look to these verses. And I just want to give us four ways that I believe that we ought to sow. Would that be okay this morning? No, four ways that we can seed the clouds. Four ways that we can sow and play the long game. Number one is this. We have to sow with open hands. We have to sow with open hands. He says in verse number six, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. This is an agricultural truism, uh, that the uh, size of the harvest will be proportionate to the amount that you sow. If you sow generously, you'll reap generously. If you sow sparingly, then you'll reap sparingly. That's why uh, Paul is saying here, sow with open hands. We don't want to be closed-fisted. We don't want to be uh, holding our cards close to our vest. We want to say, you know what? God's blessed me with so much. I'm willing to give God whatever he wants. I'm going to live open-handed and sow generously. What did Jesus say? Jesus said this in Matthew or in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. He said, give, give, and it shall be given unto you. I like that promise. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet, in other words, the same measure that you give, he says, with all, it shall be measured to you again. And so when you give, that good measure will be pressed down, shaken together, and it will be returned unto you. Now, that good measure that you give, it won't always come back in a monetary form. 
It won't, it won't always come back in a way that you might expect or might think, but God always promises to provide for his children. He always promises to bless. He always promises to honor those that honor him with our resources. And so we want to recognize that we reap what we sow. Therefore, we ought to sow generously with open hands. I was reading recently about a businessman from New Zealand. His name was Robert Laidlaw. And he decided when he was 25 years old, a relatively young man, he decided that he was going to give back to God 50% of his income. He said, you know, I'm going to trust God. He's blessed me. And so I'm just going to give 50% back. As soon as I get a paycheck, 50%, giving it to the Lord. When he was 75 years old, after making that decision nearly 50 years before, he was a multimillionaire. And this is what he said. He said, God has graciously entrusted to me a stewardship far beyond my expectations. In all my wide experience, I have never met a man who was mean in money matters with God, who was, who was blessed with spiritual gift. You know what he learned? He learned to sow with open hands. Whatever God wants, he can have. And he experienced that you reap what you sow. By the way, our ultimate example of this is our Heavenly Father. Our greatest example of generosity is found in our Heavenly Father. The Bible says this in Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son. That God loved us so much that he spared not his own son. I'm thankful to that. He was not sparing when it comes to the generosity of giving to us his son. See, God sowed with the harvest in mind. He sowed with you in mind. He sent his only begotten son to live a perfectly sinless life, to die on the cross for you and for me. I'm thankful today for the generosity of God the Father that he spared not his own son. He was not sparing his own son, but delivered him up for us all. For us, for all of us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so today, uh, first of all, we sow. We have to sow with open hands. That means we sow with generosity. But secondly, we sow with the right mindset. We have to sow with the right mindset. Now, I want us to see verse number seven. Notice verse seven. If you're with me, would you say amen? He says, every man. In other words, generosity is not like the calling for some. It's, hey, this is for you. This is for people that are really involved. This is for people that are really religious. He says, every man. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been called to be generous. Uh, generosity is not a suggestion for, us, uh, for a few. It's the command for all of us. Every man, uh, every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, generosity is not about an amount that you have. It's about an attitude that you have. It's about having the right spirit. Uh, I'm going to ask for a few people to help me. Um, Rakia, Seth, and Daniel, if you can come up here for a second and help me. Let's give it up for our volunteers. This is also our staff team, by the way. Daniel, our youth pastor. Rakia does so many things, leads our guest experience. Seth, our worship pastor. And uh, uh, right here, I'm so thankful for the team that God's blessed us with. Seth, you stand here. Uh, Daniel here and Rakia over there. And uh, uh, there's really three types of givers in verse number seven. I don't know if you noticed it, but there's three types of givers. The first type of giver that he mentions in verse number seven is, is a sad giver. This is someone that gives grudgingly. Uh, the word grudgingly, Rakia, if you can kind of just put that up. She's so sad. The word grudgingly in the Greek is this word uh, lupe, and it actually means sorrowful. 
Sometimes that's how we view giving. Like, I'll give, but I'm just kind of sad about it, if I'm honest. I wouldn't say it out loud, but, you know, I, I, the plate goes by, I put something in there, and I just kind of have a little funeral service for myself. Like, goodbye, I'll never see you again. And uh, we can be sad uh, when we give. The second type of giver in verse number seven is that uh, someone who gives out of necessity in verse number seven. This would be a mad giver. Daniel, uh, he's got a little bit of a temper, so he's a mad giver. And uh, this means that someone... Uh, is, is kind of uh, giving out a necessity. In other words, it's an obligatory, contractual setup that we have with God. Like, I don't want God to get mad at me, and so I guess I'll give. And uh, we wouldn't say it out loud, but that's the posture of our heart, uh, that I guess, I guess I have to do this, and so I'll go ahead and give, but I'm not super happy about it, if I'm honest. But then there's a third type of giver that he mentions here in verse number seven. He says it's not uh, grudgingly or out of necessity, but cheerfully. And so this is going to represent Seth. He is so excited today. He is represent Seth. He is so so cheerful. You know the word cheerful we get our word hilarious. That, that, that when we sacrifice, we sacrifice with a smile. That, that we understand that giving is not a have to, it's a get to. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, what I want us to see is that a sad giver, Rakia, is motivated by greed. It's when we want to hold back because we want more for ourselves. And, and it kind of makes us sad to think, oh, I can't do this and I can't do that because if I give to the Lord, then I don't know if I'm going to be able to do everything in life that I want to do. And so a sad giver can be motivated by greed. But a mad giver then is motivated by guilt out of necessity. If I don't give, then God's going to get mad at me and he's going to strike me with a lightning bolt or something. And so then I guess I better just give. And we give out of obligation. We give because we don't want to feel guilty about it. And so you can have greed giving. You can have guilt giving. But what we ought to have is cheerful giving, which is motivated by grace. Grace giving says, God has been so good to me that God has blessed me in immeasurable ways. The Bible says in Psalms that we are daily loaded with benefits. God has been so good to me. He's given me a home in heaven. He has blessed. He has provided. It just makes sense to give back to God. It just makes sense to serve God. It just makes sense to give my time, my talent, my treasure. It's my reasonable service. It's not greed giving or guilt giving. It's grace giving. And that's where the power is. It's not a have to, it's a get to. Let's thank our volunteers one more time. Thank you so much. There's an unbelievable story in the Old Testament that demonstrates this. It's in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 36, verse number five, it says this. And they spake unto Moses, saying, the people bring much more than enough. So in context, this was the nation of Israel. They had just been uh, brought out of bondage in Egypt, and they were getting ready to build a sanctuary. And so they were taking an offering for the purpose of building a sanctuary. Uh, they were having a heart for the house offering, so to speak. They were saying, hey, we need to get ready for the sanctuary. The people were bringing, the Bible says, more than enough. If you're still with me, would you say amen? They're bringing more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it and too much. Can you imagine? The people were so generous. The children of Israel were so generous that they kept on bringing. They kept on giving. They kept on sacrifice to where Moses had to stand up and say, listen, uh, we've received enough. Hey, you've got to stop bringing. Can you imagine if we had to say that at Rock Hill? 
That'd be a blessing, right? Like we have received so much. We've built every building we need to build. We've built every children's facility we need to build. We've supported every missionary we can possibly support. Hey, stop giving money. This was the kind of generosity that the children of Israel were demonstrating. How could they demonstrate that kind of generosity? They were so thankful that they were liberated from Egypt. They were so thankful that God had set them free that they were now uh, no longer in that slavery, in that captivity. And because they were so thankful, they were generous. Can I tell you today that as followers of Jesus, we should be so thankful for the goodness of God in our lives. We should recognize that God has been so good to us that we don't have to give. We get to give. This is grace giving. If we give grudgingly, we better not give because God loves a cheerful giver. And so here, Paul is demonstrating the heart that giving is not a duty. It's a delight. We get to. God's been so good to us. It just makes sense to give back to him. Hudson Taylor said this, The less I spend on myself and the more I give away, the fuller of happiness and joy did my soul become. There's always a direct correlation between your joy, your level of joy, and your level of generosity. Sometimes we don't experience the level of joy that we want to experience because we're not practicing generosity the way that the Bible calls us to practice generosity. And so there's a lack of joy. First Chronicles 29 verse 9 says, Then the people rejoiced. They were happy for that they offered willingly a free will offering. It wasn't a have to. This is not, if you are here today and you think, man, they just, this church wants our money. No, 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 no. God is not interested in money. He's interested in our heart. And there's always a direct correlation between our heart and our finances. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This was a free will offering. They didn't say, oh, okay, we better do this. We have to. No, no, no. Uh, they gave willingly because with perfect heart, a mature heart, they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. Now, Paul was a brilliant communicator. He, he understood that. Uh, he understood his audience. He understood what people might say in a season of generosity. Uh, he recognized that there might be some that would be cynical. Uh, Paul, by the way, he knew all about people being cynical about money. Uh, Paul, uh, when he left Thessalonica, he didn't get to stay as long as he wanted. He kind of had to rush out after a couple of months there after starting the church in Thessalonica. When Paul left, there was this overwhelming message that people were trying to spread, this gossip and criticism towards Paul. And they were criticizing Paul for three things. They said Paul only cares about uh, money, he only cares about fame, and he only cares about sex. Paul's just in this to get women. He's a womanizer. Paul's just wanted to make a name for himself. He's just trying to get famous. And Paul just wants your money. And so if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2, Paul is defending his character. He's defending his honor, saying, hey, that's not what it was about. It was about reaching people with the gospel. But Paul was very well aware of people being cynical about money. And here he says, if there's someone that doesn't understand or someone that might think, you know, I don't, I don't have anything to give. I have nothing to offer. I, I, my budget is very tight. Uh, gas prices are down, but they're not down that much. And it, you know, things are tight right now. This is what he says in verse number eight. He says this, and God is able. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. That whatever it is in your life that you need, God says, hey, I've got all the bases covered. Uh, my sufficiency is available for all of your needs. Paul says, God is able. 
there are some people today at the 11 and 30 service that need to be reminded that God is able, that he is able to restore your marriage, that he's able to bring back the wayward child, that he's able to bring healing in your life, healing in your relationships. He's able to provide for you financially. I don't know what you're going through, but I know that our God is able to do abundantly, exceedingly above all that we ask or imagine. He is able. There is nothing too hard for our God. And so Paul says he's able. He he can make all things abound for you. And so today we sow with empty hands. We're not going to be closed, uh, tight-fisted, but also we sow with the right mindset. We we sow cheerfully. It's not a have to. It's a get to. But here's a third thought today, number three. We sow with eternal vision. Eternal vision. When my kids play sports, I, I feel as though... I catch myself saying the same thing as a parent over and over again, whether it's golf or baseball, or keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on the ball. I've said that hundreds of times as a parent. How many of you parents have ever said that to your children? Just keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on the ball. If we are going to accomplish the mission that God has for us as a church, we have to keep our eye on eternity. Keep our eyes on eternity. So often we get distracted and uh, we can get uh, distracted and deterred from the trivial, from the temporary. We're looking to our left. We're looking to our right. But what we ought to do is look up and remember that we're seeding the clouds. Uh, We're living beyond the now. We have to keep eternity in mind. Now, notice how Paul says in verse 9. He says this. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad. He hath given to the poor. His righteousness remaineth forever. Now, that's an exact quotation from Psalm 112, verse number 9. He's saying uh, his righteousness remains forever. That means that some things in life matter for all of eternity. In juxtaposition, some things in life don't matter in all of eternity. This past week, I was frustrated because... I was watching the Laker game, and the Lakers lost in a game-winning shot from the Indiana Pacers, and I was frustrated in that. But you know, when I stand before Jesus in heaven one day, something tells me that that moment's not going to be brought up. (laughs) Some things in life don't matter in all of eternity. But some things in life do matter. What matters in all of eternity? People. Souls. The Word of God matters. Thy Word is settled in heaven forever. And so we have to ask ourselves, okay, what really matters in heaven? Jesus put it this way, Matthew 6, 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We have to ask, am I making investments in eternity? Am I seeding the clouds? Or am I getting distracted by the temporary? You know, there's so many things in life that are pulling for our attention, pulling for, for our resources, pulling for our investment. Uh, I was just thinking this week, Netflix, uh, $15 a month, Hulu, $8 a month, Apple Music, $10, Spotify, $10. Have you noticed that there are so many subscriptions these days of what we can subscribe to? The other day I got an email from iCloud Storage, and I was like, I didn't even realize I was paying money for iCloud Storage. Uh, there's so many different uh, subscriptions. Uh, the other night we were watching we were watching um, Shark Tank. Any Shark Tank fans in the room? Shark Tank. This guy came in and he had this idea. His business was a subscription model where he was going to send you new car air fresheners every month. Like every week or couple weeks, you can get a new air freshener. And I I was thinking in my mind, I was like, this isn't going to work. Like, this is not a good idea. And I kid you not, as I was thinking those thoughts, Katie said out loud, 
that's a great idea, as she was thinking about those car air fresheners. And so um, I'm happy to inform you that we do not have that subscription as of yet, but who knows, it could be in our future, maybe a little stocking stuffer uh, for Katie. Uh, but there's so many different things that are fighting for our attention. I read on moneymatters.com this week that we spend on average $91 a month on coffee. And so here's what I'm trying to say. None of those things that I just mentioned were wrong. If you have a Spotify, Apple Music, all, all that, I'm not saying that those things are wrong, but what would happen if we realized, okay, there's so many temporary things pulling for my attention. What would happen if I started sow sowing in eternity, seeding the clouds? How can I support missionaries? How can I uh, give through the local church to uh, make an impact that will really matter in all of eternity? How can I uh, shift my focus to these things? Proverbs 23, verse number five says, Wilt thou set mine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. How many of you are like, that's my new life verse? Like, I've found that to be true. That riches, they just make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. I just asked, I just got paid on Friday. Where did it all go? And uh, they just seem to fly away. Uh, several years ago, there was an archaeologist named Howard Carter, and he was doing some excavational digs, and he found and discovered King Tut's uh, tomb, and they did this excavation. King Tut was buried when he was 17 years old as the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, and they found over 3,000 artifacts enclosed in this tomb that were all plated in gold and unbelievable wealth and riches that were buried with him. Even a golden chariot was found uh, in this area. In the reason being is because in ancient Egyptian culture, they believed that a king would be able to take with, uh, with them their wealth into the afterlife. They could take their possessions with them. And yet here we are 3,000 years later, and uh, we know exactly where that wealth is. Why? Because possessions are not eternal. But people are. This is why Randy Alcorn said this, you will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul because you can't take it with you. We have to have an eternal focus. Notice verse 10. It says this, now he that ministereth seed to the sower. Now we have to pause right there. Sometimes we can just read scripture, read a line and just skip right over. He says, now he that ministereth seed to the sower. We've been talking about seeding the clouds. Let me ask you, who is the sower? We are the sowers, right? We are called to sow. We are called to invest. We are called to, 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 to cast our bread upon the waters. He says, now he that ministereth seed to the sower. In other words, we don't just uh, fabricate and make our own seed. That God is the one that blessed us with the seed to begin with. James 1.17 says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It's not because we're so great and we have such a hard work ethic. Hey, God is the one that instilled within you that work ethic. And so every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. He is the one that ministereth the seed to us. Therefore, uh, we recognize that we are not the owners of our resources. God is the owner. We are simply stewards and managers of what God has entrusted to us. And so he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply. I love that word multiply. In God's economy, he's all about multiplication. So we are the managers. Sorry, tracking with me. We are the stewards. A steward simply means a manager. We are the managers. Therefore, if we are faithful to manage, God is faithful to multiply. God can take a little lad, a little boy with five loaves and two fishes. He gives that little bit that he had. And what did God do? Jesus multiplied it and fed 20,000 people. Why? Because whatever we give, God will grow. If we're faithful to manage, he's faithful to multiply. And this leads us to our fourth and final thought. If you have one more in you, would you say amen today? Here's the last one. We have to sow with biblical understanding. 
if nothing else today, I would hope that our church would just recognize, okay, we're called to sow, but we're called to sow specifically with biblical understanding. In other words, we're not just blindly talking about generosity. The Bible actually gives us clear admonition and instruction for sowing, and we have to recognize and have enough spiritual maturity to see what that actually is, what that means. And so what does sowing accomplish according to the Bible? Four things that I want to give us and we'll close today. First of all, sowing meets the physical needs of the church. Sowing meets the physical needs of the church. In verse number 12, it says this, for the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints. So it not only supplieth the want of the saints, but it does supply the want of the saints. Remember, in context, we talked about the church at Jerusalem. They were the ones in want. They were the ones in need. They were the ones struggling. And so Paul is saying your generosity is going to meet the physical needs even of the church in Jerusalem. He's saying it's going to meet their tangible, physical needs. I was talking this week to a pastor friend that I have um, that lives in New York City. He started a church in New York, and uh, he's been to our church uh, several different times. And they're a church plant, they have no money, and they're doing their best to reach people with the gospel. They're seeing people saved often, seeing people baptized. It's, it's great to see. And there was a building that became available uh, for them, and uh, they couldn't afford it. It was out of their range. They didn't have any money, nothing in savings. They're just getting started. And this was a great opportunity. And so uh, Anthony, he reached out uh, to me, and he reached out to several different uh, pastors and several different churches that were partnering with him. And said, and said, hey, there's this building that's available. We can't afford it, but would you consider helping us? Would you consider giving and towards this building? And this week I was texting him. He sent me this picture. And this picture is of their church building. And because of our church's generosity and other churches' generosity, they paid for the building in full. There's no payment. Can I tell you today, you might not ever visit that church, but that is fruit that abounds to your account. See, this is what generosity looks like. In fact, in verse number 11, it says this, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us, through us. Please underline that phrase, circle it, highlight it, start through us. See, generosity is an opportunity to see what God can do through you. See, Anthony and that church, Electric, Electric City Baptist Church, they have a building that they're going to reach people with the gospel. And it was really a collective effort from churches coming together, showing and demonstrating generosity. And so quickly, sowing seeds meets the physical needs of the church. Secondly, sowing seeds produces gratitude. In verse 12, it says, for the administration of this service, not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Generosity produces gratitude. Gratitude and generosity are always intertwined. A.W. Tozer said this. I love this. I love this statement. He said, gratitude is an offering precious in the sight of God. And it is one that the poorest of us can make and not be poor, but richer for having made it. A sacrifice of gratitude. I might not have everything that I want, but God has given me everything that I need. He's been faithful. He set me free. He saved me. And therefore, I will, be I will be grateful. So the physical needs of the church, gratitude. But then thirdly, uh, our sowing seeds, it glorifies God. Verse 13, whilst the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God. For your professed subjection or submission to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution, in other words, your generosity unto them and unto all men. I love this verse. Paul says, your generosity 
produce within the church glory for God. Can I remind us today that we do not give for our glory, that we do not serve for our glory, that we do not show up for our glory, that we don't preach for our glory. We do what we do for the glory of God because that is why we were created. It's not about me. It's not about my kingdom. It's not about their kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God and giving him the glory that he deserves. The prophet Isaiah said, this is why we were created. We live in a very narcissistic, self-centered culture. It's all about me. Serve me, bless me, help me, meet my needs, and if you don't, I'm done with you. But we recognize as followers of Jesus that it's actually not about us at all. But it is all about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus, and we're called to give him glory. And this is what generosity does. It's an opportunity to give God glory. What a great thing to participate in if it gives God glory. And then Here's the fourth, fourth thing. Sowing seeds unites God's people. In verse 14, it says this, and by their prayer for you, which after you, for the exceeding grace of God in you, I love this phrase, and by their prayer for you. Now, if you've been following their prayer, he's talking about the church at Jerusalem, their prayer. So I love, I love what's happening here. The church at Corinth, the churches in Macedonia, they're gonna be generous, they're gonna give. And now the church at Jerusalem, they're going to be praying for you. You're giving, they're praying. We're in this together, striving together for the faith of the gospel. See, generosity is an opportunity to walk in unity, to walk in harmony. It's not about that person, this person. It's about collectively striving together for the faith of the gospel to give God glory. 1 Corinthians 3 says this. In verse number 4, Paul said, For while one saith, I am of Paul. Paul's talking about the factions that often take place in ministry and in churches. He says, one says, I'm of Paul. I'm going to wear the Apostle Paul's jersey. I'm going to be on his team. And then someone else says, uh, uh, someone else says, I am of Apollos. No, I like the way Apollos does it. I like the way Paul does it. He says, are you not carnal? That's not a spiritual way to think. That's a fleshly way to think, carnal, flesh. He says, that's a fleshly way to think. He says, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man, I have planted, Apollos watered, but it's God that gives the increase. We sow, we serve, we give, but ultimately God is the one that brings the increase. He is the one that deserves all the glory. And then Paul closes, verse 15, the final verse of chapter 9. He says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. I love how Paul concludes this because he's clearly overwhelmed with emotion. He's talking about generosity, but he just can't help but think about the generosity of God. He says, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. You know that word unspeakable in the Greek? It's not found in any other ancient literature. It's the only time it's used in the Bible. In other words, Paul was so overwhelmed with emotion that he was trying to find a word that would adequately describe the gift of God, and he just couldn't find a word to do it, so he just made up a new one. Unspeakable, indescribable, unfathomable, this gift that God has given us. What's the gift that he's talking about? The gift of God's Son, the gift of salvation. I don't know what the greatest gift you ever got at Christmas was. How many of you have already done some Christmas shopping? How many of you still have a lot of Christmas shopping to do? I don't know what the greatest gift that you ever received was. I think one of my greatest gifts that I ever received was a, a yo-yo when I was in elementary. 
I really wanted it, and I got it. Also, a pair of Kobe Bryant shoes when I was in junior high. Great gift. I don't know what the greatest gift that you've ever received was, but I know this. The greatest gift in the history of all of humanity is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. See, salvation is not procured by religious activity. It's not about being the best version of yourself and trying to figure out the best person that you can possibly be and being real religious. And I'm going to read the Bible here and I'm going to go to church here. And those are good things, but that is not what saves you. Titus 3, 5 says that it's not by works of righteousness. It's according to his mercy that he saves us. Salvation is a free gift from God. Uh, We don't have to earn it, achieve it. All we have to do is open our hearts and open our hands and receive that gift. We believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. We believe that Jesus died on the cross in our place to pay the price that we could never pay. And three days later, aren't you glad that he rose again from the grave? And today he is alive and well. And because Jesus is alive today, we can experience eternal life. So play the long game. Consider eternity. A.W. Tozer said this. I'll close with this quote. He said this. As base a thing as money often is, yet it can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. What was A.W. Tozer saying? Play the long game. Don't consider here and now, consider there and then, consider all of eternity. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.